Matthew chapter 12. We'll be looking at lesson 27. All right, let's bow and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity we have on this special day to come into your presence to study your word. We ask, Lord, that your word would not return unto you void, but that it would accomplish that which you please and prosper in the thing whereto you sent it. We pray, Lord, that as we open your word, you would speak to us each individually according to our individual needs. This is an exciting lesson, in my opinion, and I pray it will be when everybody leaves here today that they will magnify and glorify you. And, Lord, as far as the elections are concerned, we just do pray that, um, that your will and your way will be done and that you will put your people in their proper places. We pray, Lord, that uh, your people, we Christians, would turn back to you. You said if your people will humble themselves and pray and seek your face. You will forgive their sins and heal their land. We pray, Lord, for healing for this land. May we, one by one, witness to people and win this land back for you. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Because the Lord Jesus was not conforming to their Sabbath traditions and because he was able to soundly, logically, scripturally, and shamefully refute every accusation that came from the Pharisees, The religious rulers of Israel even involved their otherwise arch enemies, the Herodians, in hatching a plan to destroy him. That's what we saw last week. They hated him. They hated him because he was so popular with the crowds. They hated him for always managing to outsmart them with his perfect wisdom and to leave them standing there in utter silence. Uh, and not having a word to say back to him because, as I said, his answers were so scriptural and so sound. And they hated him for now, his numerous declarations of deity. What did he said? He said, my father worketh hitherto and I work. He said, the son quickeneth or bring to life whom he will. He said, the father hath committed all judgment unto the son. He said, he that honoreth not the son honoreth not the father which hath sent him. He said, for had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. And then in our last lesson, he had declared himself to be greater than the temple and to be the Lord of uh, the Sabbath. So can you imagine the fury of these religious leaders hearing all this? They had no doubt about the fact that he was claiming to be deity. It was at this point in time Then, when the hostility against him was reaching its apex, and Jesus could already begin to feel the heat of his approaching death, that he knew it was time to select and begin to prepare his official representatives to carry on his earthly work after he would ascend back to his Father in heaven. Jesus was now, in our chronological study, he is now somewhere between about 18 and 20 months away from his crucifixion. About a year and a half to two years, maybe, away from his crucifixion. And it will take us seven years to cover those 18 months, at least. (laughs) So time was of the essence for the Lord. Therefore, he would choose 12 key men to continue after his death and resurrection the proclamation of the gospel message for the salvation of Israel and for the establishment of his church. After John the Baptist had been arrested, the Lord had essentially been ministering alone. He had the companionship, we know, of at least seven full-time disciples and really a large company of other disciples as well. I know if you read through the scripture, you'll see that he sent out, sent out at one point in time 70, besides our 12 disciples that we know of. But he had really a multitude of disciples. You know what a disciple was? A learner. So he had great multitudes of disciples following him, as well as crowds of people, and apparently as well as crowds of religious leaders who seemed to follow him everywhere he went. But all, to this point, all, including the ones we know so well, like Peter and and Andrew and James and John, all of them, to this point, were merely observers of what he did or said, or they were recipients of what he did. However, his appointment of 12 specific men marked a significant turning point in his ministry. From now on, 
the focus of his ministry would turn from the multitudes to the few. He would, of course, still draw large crowds. We'll see that, you know, as he feeds 5,000 and 4,000 on two different occasions. So he's still going to be drawing large crowds, and he will still be teaching them, as he does with the Sermon on the Mount. But his primary focus and his primary training and energy is going to be spent on who? The Twelve. And we'll, we will be referring to them as the Twelve, with a capital T. That's what commentators do all the time, the Twelve. With them, he would be like a mother eagle watching her little eaglets as they learn to fly. So our final lesson before we begin the Lord's famous Sermon on the Mount, which we will begin next week, Lord willing. Before This is our last lesson now before we look at that sermon. We're going to cover two. The title for our lesson is The Appointment of the Apostles. And we're going to cover two main subtitles. You see that in your notes. We're going to be looking, first of all, at God's beloved servant. This is going to be the uh, Matthew tells us who Jesus is and that he fulfilled a messianic prophecy found in Isaiah 42. So we'll be looking at God's beloved servant, speaking of Christ. And then we're going to look at Christ's beloved servants as we consider the Lord's call of his 12 special men to be his apostles. We'll begin by looking at God's beloved servant. And for this, I want to read Matthew 12, verses 15 to 21. And then we'll also look at Mark 3, verses 7 to 12. But let's look first at uh, Matthew 12, starting at verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, now what did he know? He knew that the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him, verse 14. So verse 15 says, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. And he charged them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, or Isaiah, the prophet, saying, here's the quote from Isaiah, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and his, in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Okay, now let's look at Mark 3, verses 7 to 12. Mark 3. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, which is Perea. And they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had plagues and unclean spirits. When they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Okay, in spite of his boldness in talking openly about his deity and in allowing and performing acts of necessity and mercy on the Sabbath in the very teeth of his enemies, the Lord Jesus did not really desire to court any further trouble at this time. He knew that it was not yet his hour to die, and so he withdrew himself from thence, is what we read in Matthew 12:15, meaning he withdrew himself not only from the synagogue where he had healed the man with the withered right hand, but apparently he also withdrew himself from Capernaum itself, which is where we assume he was when he healed that withered hand. However, removing himself from the ever-watchful eyes of the Pharisees of that city did not mean that the Lord Jesus was going to be alone, you know, and have some peace and quiet. Mark tells us that a great multitude from Galilee followed him. Now, he is up in the northern province of Galilee, and a great multitude, actually in the Greek, great emphasizes exceptional size. A great multitude from Galilee followed him. And then there was a second great multitude, which also followed him. And where did they come from? 
the southern province. They came from Judea and the holy city itself, Jerusalem. As well as, we find out that second great multitude came from surrounding Gentile lands, such as Idumea and Perea, and from the coastal Phoenician towns of Tyre and Sidon. So many Gentiles were in that crowd as well. Notice the only thing we don't hear about is any Samaritans. There was no representative group from Samaria. And that again, I think, shows us how much the Samaritans and the Jews did not intermingle. The repeated reports about Jesus' miracles were drawing tremendous crowds from all over. You know, it says, when they heard what great things he did. In fact, the, the masses were thronging the Lord. They were actually pressing upon him, which means they were falling on him. Can't you just picture a mob and people all trying to get to him just to touch him? Kind of like, I don't know if they thought just by touching him would heal them. Who else thought that? the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years thought if she could just touch the hem of his garment she would be healed and so perhaps there was that mindset if we could just touch him we'll be healed or if they were already whole maybe they thought if they touched him virtue would come out of him to them but anyway the people were thronging him because the multitude the multitude was um, on the verge of getting out of hand by pressing upon him so much in, in kind of a mobbish unorganized manner the Lord, we are told, spoke to his disciples that they should have a small ship on hand, ready. So apparently he's right at the Sea of Galilee. He's close to the Sea of Galilee. And the word for small ship is not the, a word for a fishing vessel. It's really the word for a rowboat. So it wasn't that he really wanted to get out there and preach to the people as he had done on another occasion. It was on hand in case he needed it as an escape from the pressure of this undisciplined crowd. You know, he would get in the rowboat and get away from them before they would harm him. He wanted to heal the people, and he did. Because Matthew tells us, did you notice in 12.15, he says that he healed them all. He healed every one of them. But the Lord Jesus is not the author of confusion. He preferred to do this in an orderly manner. Included among those whom Jesus healed were, we are told, those with all kinds of plagues, and also, who else? Those with unclean spirits or evil spirits, demons, who either came themselves, you know, the person who was possessed got themselves to Jesus, or they were physically brought there by family and friends to be exercised from the demons possessing them. We are told, remember we've already talked about this, that whenever evil spirits saw Jesus they generally did two things. They fell down before him, which they do here, and that indicates they recognized his authority. And also they cried, which literally, we discussed this as well, meant what? Every time you hear the demon screaming, if you want to know what the real Greek word is, it's screaming. They screamed out. And that, what does that indicate? Their fear of him, and rightfully so. So here it says that they cried out or they screamed out, Thou art the Son of God, verse 11. The evil spirits knew who Jesus was, didn't they? They, they truly knew who he was. They knew better than anyone who he was. Their ready con confession stands in stark contrast to who? The religious rulers who would not even be willing to consider the possibility that Jesus was the Son of God. So we see a contrast. But also, whenever the Lord Jesus received a testimony from evil spirits, such as in this situation, what did he always tell them to do? Be silent. He did not want the testimony of his true identity to be associated with the impure and wicked emissaries of Satan. He wanted men to know and to acknowledge who he is based on his witnesses, not Satan's. And who were his five witnesses? We just looked at them, was that last week? I don't know, last week seems like it was 100 years ago, but <laughs> was it last week? No, two weeks ago. We looked in John chapter 5. His five witnesses are his own words, John the Baptist, his own works, his father, God, and, and the word, the scripture. Those are his five witnesses. Now, Matthew's version 
of this uh, same episode here states that he also told all the people who he had healed not to make him known. And in doing this, we find out that the Lord was actually fulfilling messianic prophecy, which is found in Isaiah 42. So I want you to go to Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4, because I'll be referring back and forth to Matthew's interpretation of Isaiah as well as Isaiah. See, this was a watershed moment in the Lord's ministry. So Matthew here, at this point in time, summarized for us who Jesus is and also the nature of Jesus' ministry. And Matthew did this by referring to a well-known messianic prophecy. Remember, we talked about the fact that Matthew, who had formerly been Levi the publican, really, really seemed to know his Old Testament scripture. So whenever he thinks of Jesus and some particular aspect of Jesus or his ministry, he also thinks of an Old Testament scripture that had foretold this. And now we're coming to sort of the end of the first phase of the Lord's ministry. From now on, he's going to be working specifically with his 12 men. So, so what Matthew does is he summarizes for us who Jesus is and all about his ministry. He said that the Messiah, uh, referred to in Isaiah as the elect, beloved servant of God, would be God's delight. He would be clothed with God's spirit. He would come forth to reveal God's mind or God's justice to who? To the Gentiles. See that at the end of verse 18 in Matthew 12. And he would do all of this peaceably without contention, without strife, without turmoil, and loud shouting or ostentatious, uh, ostentatious show. Actually, there are six prophecies regarding the Messiah, which are found in Matthew's reference to this Isaiah passage, and each one of them was completely filled in the Lord Jesus Christ or will yet be filled in Jesus Christ. The first one was, the first prediction is that the coming servant of God... That's how Isaiah referred to him. Um, would, and that's a reference to the Messiah, that the Messiah would be God's delight. God would take great pleasure in this coming one, this Messiah. Now, did Jesus fulfill that? Did God take great delight and pleasure in Jesus Christ? Yes, he did. And we know that at least on three occasions, God spoke audibly from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. That was at his baptism at the Mount of Transfiguration, and then in John 12, 28, shortly before the Lord went to the cross. Secondly, at the end of, or the middle of Matthew 12, 18, he refers to Isaiah 42, 1, again, and uh, he says that God's Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, would in a very unique and special way be upon God's elect servant. Really, in the Isaiah passage, we have the Trinity, Because we have God, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have his beloved servant, who is speaking of his son, the Messiah. So we have the Trinity right there. But in the special way, the Holy Spirit would be on the coming Messiah. Well, was Jesus in a special way anointed by the Holy Spirit? Yes, not only was he conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was commissioned by the Holy Spirit. He was yielded yielded to the Holy Spirit, and he was one with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the last phrase of Matthew 12:18, also taken from Isaiah 42, verse 1, predicted that the Messiah would show judgment to the Gentiles. The Lord Jesus' redemption and his message of salvation, was it also for the Gentiles? How many of you are Gentiles? Just about everybody in here. Uh, indeed, it was for the Gentiles. Uh, Gentiles. Contrary to the popular thinking of the Jewish people at that time, the Messiah, their Messiah, was also to be the redeemer of the entire world, not just Israel. Actually, you know, that has always been God's plan of redemption, to include all mankind. In fact, when Israel rejected him, he raised up a new channel to carry his message of salvation to the world, and as was just evidenced, that, that new channel or agent is made, made up mostly of Gentiles, the Gentile-dominated church. Of course, the church is also 
also has uh, Jewish people in it as well, and I'm glad to be able to say that. I was saved by a completed Jew. All right, also, there was uh, a commitment to meekness predicted. In verse 19, Matthew quotes from 42.2 of Isaiah, which stated that the Messiah would not cry aloud, nor strive, meaning quarrel, nor shout in the streets. Christ, contrary to sometimes the movies that you might see or books you might read, Christ did not come to earth to be a rabble-rousing revolutionary or a hot-headed zealot who incited mobs to action by shouting forth inflammatory speeches. He spoke with composure. He was a man of integrity. He um, spoke with dignity. He never resorted to emotionalism as a means of persuading people to himself and to his truth. He did not form or lead mobs or resort to any kind of political schemes, nor did he argue or quarrel with anyone. You know, even the Pharisees, he just presents them in a very dignified manner the truth from the scripture. His manner was always that of a gentleman. He was meek and he was lowly of heart. And that kind of meekness, that kind of humility is true spiritual strength. Then Isaiah stated that the Messiah would be compassionate and gentle with the weak. He would minister to those whose lives were broken and worn out, the bruised reeds and the smoldering flax or the smoldering wicks, as Isaiah 42.3 calls them. And those kind of terms, bruised reeds and smoldering flax, that those terms refer to people who society casts off as, as uh, helpless and weak or nobodies, no goods. Like so many of the people we've already discussed, you know, the man at the pool of Bethesda or the uh, paralytic lowered through the, or the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, broken people, um, people who can no longer make music, you know, they're, they're bruised reeds because their lives are so heavenly burdened down with hardship and with demands or they cannot they can not only no longer make music but they can no longer give light they're smoldering wicks have you ever seen a, a candle wick just about to go out that describes this kind of people the true servant of god the coming messiah would reveal the compassionate and the merciful nature of god he would not break those who were already bruised nor quench those who were about to go out you know, their light was about to go out. His job was to restore and to rekindle. Aren't you glad for that? Because I'll tell you what, I was a, I was a bent reed. I was a bro. I mean, the, my guilt had me way bent over. And I was a smoldering wick. Just a little bit of light about to go out. And I am so glad he came along and restored and rekindled me. So the... Prophecy is saying that he would be a comfort to the weak. Does that describe Jesus Christ? Absolutely perfectly. So if you have been buffeted by life, which probably every one of us, if we've lived long enough, we have been buffeted by life. If you're a bruised reed or if you have weak faith, and some of us probably do have very weak faith. We're a smoldering wick. You know what? I've got good news for you. You can benefit from the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ because he did not come to snuff out the weak but he came to fan you know I've got one of those pumps that you fan on a flame that's what he came to do he came to fan the smoldering wick into a full and bright flame mm, gives me goosebumps that's what he did with me he took that little smoldering little bit of faith I had and I just thought there was a God up there somewhere and he fanned it until it's a bright flame. I know that I know that I know that Jesus Christ is my Savior. And he also came to straighten and strengthen that bent and bruised reed. So isn't that great news? I love those terms. All right, finally, I've got to get on. I'll never get through. But Matthew um, also stated in verses 20 and 21 that the Messiah would cause justice to triumph and the Gentiles to trust in him. And this is a quote from Isaiah 42, 
3 and 4, which says this. Isaiah says this. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Speaking of the coming Messiah. He shall not fail. Aren't you glad of that? I mean, it looks pretty bad from where we are in our study. But it said long ago, 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah said, he shall not fail nor be discouraged. Did the Lord Jesus get discouraged? If anybody could get discouraged, it would have been him, but he didn't get discouraged. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. Now, Matthew, interestingly, Matthew didn't give us a direct quote, word by word quote from Isaiah, but he, under divine inspiration, sort of interpolated it for us. He put it into more modern words and he tells us that that reference to the isles refers to the time when the Gentiles would put their trust in the Savior's name. Jesus Christ will one day, this is saying, be the victor over all the earth. His redemptive plan for mankind and for the earth itself will not fail. Absolute positive will not fail. His justice will eventually rule. No matter who's elected today, his justice will eventually rule. So Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be commended by God. He would be commissioned by the Spirit. He would communicate the message of salvation to the Gentiles. He would not cry out like some egocentric demagogue, but he would instead go about his work quietly and humbly. He would not trample down the down-and-outers or those who were poor in spirit, and he would bring justice and eventual victory to the entire world. Now, is that an amazing set of prophecies? Yes, it is. And they were all fulfilled or will be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true Messiah Isaiah was speaking of. Okay, let's look now at Christ's beloved servants. And where are you? Are you in Matthew or Mark? All right, go to Mark. (laughs) Go to Mark and let's look at, it's not in Matthew, so I had no choice. Let's look at verses 13 to 19 in Mark 3. And then we'll go over to Luke. All right, Mark three thirteen. <clears throat> this is after he straightly charged all those uh, unclean spirits not to make him known. It says in verse 13, And he goeth up into a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him. And he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach. And to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And Simon, he surnamed Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boanerges, which means the sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite. And Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into an house. Okay, now over to Luke 6. Luke 6, verses 12 to 16. He tells us some things about the Lord's night up there on the mountain, which Mark did not include. Luke 6:12 And it came to pass in those days that when he when he Jesus went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God and when it was day he called unto him his disciples and of them he chose 12 whom also he named apostles Simon whom he also named Peter and Andrew his brother James and John Philip and Bartholomew Matthew and Thomas James the son of Alphaeus and Simon called Zelotes and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. Okay. Most people probably do not realize that Jesus did not select his 12 men to be his apostles until he was into his second year of public ministry, only 18 to 20 months from his crucifixion. That is when he called out, Uh, from his larger group of disciples, and we don't know how many. We know there was at least mm, 82, (laughs) because there was a 70 and then there was 12. So there was at least 82 disciples following him, but they assumed there was much more than even that. 
Uh, so let's say maybe he had a group of 100, 200 uh, disciples, learners, followers. And from that group of disciples, he picked 12 men to be his apostles. But it wasn't until he was into... Actually, his ministry, some commentators say, you know, he had three and a half years of ministry. It was almost about halfway through his public ministry that he elected those 12 to be his apostles. So that's something new to most people. Now, the Lord's strategy for advancing his kingdom was going to hinge on these 12 men, not on the multitudes who had been clamoring after him and pressing upon him. You know, most of them were without faith. Most of them were thrill seekers or wanted something from him. He was going to work through a few ordinary, fallible individuals rather than advance his cause by way of crowds, you know, mob force or personal popularity or military might or a a public relations committee. He was going to do it through just 12 men. And as you know, one of them was apostate. Now, from the human perspective on this, the future of the church and the success of the gospel rested on the faithfulness of then of this these handful of men, this handful of apostles, because there was no alternate plan. There, there were no backup players. There was no second string. There was no plan B. The strategy would surely then sound very, very risky, so much depending on so few. Men with just common trades, uh, they think maybe seven at the most, seven of them. We know at least four were fishermen, but they speculate seven of them might have been fishermen. We know one was a former tax collector, and we're not sure of the trades of the other. But they were just common workers, no distinct aptitudes, and... um, the, the period of their training would take less than half as long as it takes to get a seminary degree today. They're only going to be in training some 18 to 20 months. And yet they were going to be the very foundation of the, of the Christian church, the foundation. You know, Christ himself is the chief cornerstone, but they are the foundation. But of course, I mean, now that looks pretty dangerous, doesn't it? You say, uh-oh, but does Jesus know what he's doing? Yes, Jesus knew what he was doing. Those men were merely instruments in his hands, just as you and I can be instruments in his hands today. He knew that the success of his divine strategy actually would not depend on them, but on the Holy Spirit working in and through them to accomplish God's sovereign will. You know, the Lord, and I'm glad for this, I know you are too, the Lord chooses the the humble. He chooses the foolish, the weak, you know, not many mighty. He chooses the humble, the meek, the weak, the nobodies of this world to work through so that there is never a question about the source of their power when they manage to change the world. And so that no man can boast before him of what they have done. You see, it's not the man. It's not the woman, is it? It's, it's the truth of God. This is where the power is. The dynamite, the dynamite is in the truth of God. And the power of God in that man or in that woman, that's where the power comes. And the 12 apostles were absolutely no exception to this. Now, the number 12 was no doubt to correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, these are going to be the new, remember the parables of the new wine pouch and the new patch. These were to be the Lord's new wineskins. He was, he was beginning something new and not repairing or improving something old. Israel was apostate, and that has been evidenced by what we've seen of her spiritual leaders at that time. Israel had abandoned God's divine grace for, instead, she had abandoned his grace for a works-oriented religion. She had taken Judaism, and she had turned it into legalism. The Jews based their salvation on their works or on their their physical descent from Abraham rather than the faith of Abraham. The spiritual leadership of of the nation was full, and we're going to see this especially when we get into the Sermon on the Mount, full of hypocrisy and self-righteousness, and cold-heartedness. So in choosing the apostles, 
Jesus was appointing new leadership for the new covenant. The new people of God would have 12 leaders, just as Israel had. And notice that the Lord did not choose, in his 12 men, he did not choose a single rabbi, did he? Had any of them been rabbis? No. He didn't choose a single Levite. He didn't choose a priest. He didn't choose a Pharisee. He didn't choose a Sadducee to be one of his official representatives who would carry both his message and his, his authority to the world. He did not choose one single man who came from the religious establishment of Israel. His choosing of the 12 apostles who were not theologically trained was actually a judgment against the spiritual leadership of Israel. It was a a judgment against rabbinical Judaism. The religious elite of Israel were divinely being set aside when Jesus chose these 12 men, these common, and 11 of them were Galileans, weren't they? Only Judas Iscariot was from uh, the more refined area of Judea. So these were, and they were Jewish though, weren't they? Every single one of them was Jewish. These were Jewish men who represented the true Israel of God. You know, the genuinely repentant and believing Israel. And they also became, not only did they represent the true Israel, but they also became the foundation stones of the church, which would consist of representatives from the whole world. You know, not just from Israel, but from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation on earth. Well, before appointing the 12 men who would become his apostles, what did the Lord Jesus do? We are told he went up into a mountain to pray. As he had already stated himself, back in John 5, 19, he always sought his Father's will in everything that he did. This important selection of the apostles was no exception to that truth. He needed to seek his father's will in his humanity. He already knew in his deity what his father's will was. But in his humanity, he was depending on God to lead and direct him in his selection of these 12. And we find that Jesus was very persistent in prayer because Luke tells us that he continued all night in prayer. And in the Greek, it it literally speaks. It almost reminds me of his night at Gethsemane. Because it speaks of him enduring in a heavy task all through the night. It has the sense of toiling and staying at that throughout the night. It means that he, he remained awake throughout the darkness of the night until morning. And he was persevering that whole time in prayer. He had an immense weight of responsibility on him. I mean, there was this brewing hostility Uh, from the religious crowd threatening to bring about his death, which he knew about because he's omniscient. And so he knew that he only had but a little bit of time to train the men who would carry on the gospel to the world. So he was engaged all night long in an inter-Trinitarian communion, you know, with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, probably at least some 10 hours of, of prayer. What an example he is to us. That's convicting, isn't it? I would never make it past the first ten minutes. I'd be snoring just like the disciples did there at Gethsemane. Now, of course, the selection of the men had already been made, as I said, by the triune Godhead before the foundation of the world was laid. It was no surprise who the twelve apostles were going to be. Jesus, in his divinity, he knew that. So I would think that most of his time in prayer all night long was that he was praying for his men. Don't you? I think he was praying for them, interceding on their behalf as their mediator. You know, the entire future of the world would be settled by what he would do the following morning when he came down from that mountain, who he would appoint and who he would not appoint. There was so very much at stake. No man ever, ever realized such tremendous responsibility as Jesus Christ. And you can wonder, I do, how much of that night he spent in prayer concerning his appointment of one particular apostle. You know, because he knew the hearts of all men, as well as what the future held in store for him, 
it must have been in his humanity the most difficult for him to appoint Judas Iscariot, who he knew would betray him. You know, he could have easily not chosen Judas and thereby avoided the pain of being betrayed by a friend, you know? But I think what the Lord did, just like in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was praying regarding Judas, he said, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Ivor Powell, in his commentary on the book of Luke, says this. He says, quote, that Judas was the devil's challenge to Christ, none can deny. The Lord was instructing his followers how to behave under every circumstance, but it was one thing to teach them these things and another to show them. Could he, the Son of God, remain calm, serene, and holy when a traitor lived in his presence? It is easier to deal with enemies without the camp than to tolerate hypocrisy within the heart of a professed friend. Perhaps Jesus had to accept Judas, for otherwise he would have been avoiding a direct challenge from Satan. End of quote. And that's something to meditate on. Well, in Mark 3.13, we read that Jesus calleth unto him whom he would. He summoned unto himself those he sovereignly chose, and they came unto him. Not one of those 12 men initiated the idea of following the Lord, uh, even as his disciples, much less as his apostles. He did not first consult with them, you know, to determine whether they wanted to be chosen, did he? He only consulted with who? His heavenly father. So the men themselves, the 12 men, just like the patriarchs, patriarchs uh, Abraham, did Abraham choose to be... Abraham, the, you know, the father of the faith, and to leave Ur and go into... No. And uh, his son Isaac didn't choose to be who he was, or, or Jacob, or uh, Joseph. And, and none of the Old Testament prophets chose to be prophets. They were all chosen by God's sovereign will and for his divine purposes. And the Lord Jesus reminded his men of this truth later on in John fifteen sixteen when he said to them, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. Well, after calling together all his disciples, as I said, that was a big crowd of followers, men, uh, could have probably was even women, there were even women there, um, Susanna and jo- Joanna and others. But from that group, he chose among them 12 who were to function as his sent ones, apostolos, sent ones. And in Mark 3, verses 15 and 16, we learn that Jesus chose the twelve and that they should be, there's two parts to what he was doing here, that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. And when he, went, when he sent them forth, which isn't going to be for a while yet, on short-term mission trips, he would give them authority to do what? To heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And that would verify that their message about Jesus was true. The twelve were going to be uniquely prepared by the Lord himself to be his sent ones. But before they could be sent out, they had to be pulled in. I like that. Before they were going to be sent out, they had to be pulled in. Notice the double purpose in his appointment. That's why I pointed this out before. First of all, they should be with him. That referred to the present tense. They were going to be with him day and night. And second... Then he would send them forth to preach. His immediate purpose was that the twelve would be constantly with him as his personal associates. And this constant companionship with him would qualify them then for their future work after his death as his personal witnesses. So the principle that the Lord was teaching through this method was that fellowship with him must proceed preaching about him or teaching or witnessing. You know, you need to spend time with him before you can go out for him. During their internship phase of instruction, the Lord Jesus was going to be monitoring their, their progress, and it was going to be very slow. <laughs> very, I mean, we're all dumb sheep, aren't we? 
and the apostles were no exception to this. He would be monitoring their progress. They would be with him. They would uh, listen to his teaching. They would watch how he dealt with people. They would watch how he answered criticism. They would watch how he responded to personal insult. They would watch how he handled quarrels among them even, um, how he enjoyed fellowship with sinners and down and outers, how he enjoyed fellowship with them. They could ask him questions. Uh, he could even send them out, as I said, on these short-term mission trips where they would then come back and he would patiently correct them and critique what they had, their, their progress, what they had done. And this, you see, this method of teaching was perfect. It wasn't just by words. It was by example. And isn't that the best way to teach our children or whoever we're teaching? Not just by our words. Sometimes they see, they learn more by watching us than listening to us. And uh, this is good because this is one's life being invested in another. Now, the main lesson that the apostles would learn during this time of their internship would be that without Jesus... They were totally impotent. Without him, their master, they could do nothing. Now, and they, if you ever do a study, and I do recommend a book called 12, 12 Ordinary Men. I recommend that very, very highly. If you want to, I wish we had time to get into each apostle, which is what he does, and tells you as much as, as they can find out about them. It is so fascinating. But these 12 men were definitely not chosen on the basis of their abilities or on the basis of their worthiness or their great personalities. There are no intrinsically perfect and qualified people. Remember that verse we learned a little while ago? As it is written, there is none good. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. No one is good enough to serve God or to represent him. And the apostles were, just as James wrote regarding the prophet Elijah, they were with a nature like ours. So if you have this concept of the apostles up on pedestals or stained glass windows as some holy saints with big halos around them, get rid of that image. Now, they deserve our respect for what Jesus made of them and that they did lay the foundation for our faith, but they were with a nature just like ours. They... They did not rise to their position as apostles because they were really different than any of us. They, did, they uh, were also, amazingly, a rather thick-headed bunch of men. And you know how men can be. <laughs> they were, some of them were just plain thick-headed. <laughs> Jesus said to them on one occasion, Are ye also yet without understanding? Do ye not yet understand? That was in Matthew 15. And on another occasion, he said, Oh, ye of little faith, do ye not yet understand? I use the word yet a lot in my writings, but I know so does Jesus. Don't you get it yet? What's the matter with you guys? And on another occasion, occasion he said, Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe. Actually, four times in Matthew's gospel alone, Jesus said to them, O ye of little faith. It's interesting how scripture, instead of uh, covering over their failures and covering, you know, hiding, glossing over their faults and their blemishes, scripture seems to make a point of, of showing us their human weaknesses. And this, again, is to teach us that our faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Their transformation into vessels of honor was based solely on the work of the potter himself. However, to their commendation, they had made themselves available. That's the key word. <laughs> they had made themselves available to be used. They were chosen because they had made themselves available to be chosen and not because of their great abilities. Now, for those of us, which probably everybody in this room, who realize just how inadequate we are to serve the living God, it's really encouraging. This should be encouraging. That's why scripture shows us their blemishes and faults and spots, because we see how humanly defective and weak the apostles really were, and that gives us hope. 
You know, just think of this. The list, which we'll look at in a minute, I'm probably going to go over time, but the list of them begins with a man who denied Christ and it ends with a man who betrayed Christ. Now, does that give you a little hope? (laughs) We may see ourselves, and I find this is true, especially with women, we may see ourselves as being worthless nobodies, incapable of doing much of anything. And, And left to ourselves, guess what? That's absolutely true. However, the important thing to remember, women, is that, as with the Lord's Twelve, even though they and we may be inept and underqualified for a task that the Lord may call us to, the teacher, the master, is unsurpassed. Jesus' purpose and his intention was to teach these men to be surrendered to him and to help them see what they could be through his power and through his provision. You know, too many Christians, I'm afraid, go around through their whole lives without being fulfilled in their service to Christ. Why? Because they overestimate their own inabilities and they underestimate his ability. So don't think that you can't be used by the Lord because you don't have this or you don't have that. You're not educated enough or you can't speak. Moses couldn't speak. He stuttered. I don't have any theological training at all. I never even was privileged to go to a Christian school. You know, but we have to, if we make ourselves available, he, can, he will use us. And it's not us. It's his power in and of us. So I encourage you, get out there and be used of him. There's a place for you. Just make yourself available. As just mentioned, uh, one of the most obvious shortcomings of the, of the apostles, we're going to talk about some of their shortcomings, was their lack of spiritual understanding. Really, all the way through their internship training, they demonstrated very little spiritual perception of the deep kingdom truths that Jesus attempted over and over again to teach them. They did not really understand God's redemptive plan for the world. They struggled to understand many of his teachings and a lot of his parables. They struggled also with all their preconceived ideas of what the Messiah should be like and what he had come to do. They had difficulty overcoming many of their Jewish prejudices. Even Peter had to be reprimanded by Paul, remember, because of Jewish prejudices and traditions. An example of their lack of spiritual comprehension occurred after the Lord was crucified. You know, although he had warned them over and over again that he would be put to death, yet when it happened, what did they do? They scattered in fear and they sunk into despair. You see, their despondency was because of their result, was a result of their failure to spiritually understand what he had been trying to tell them that I am going to die. And really their despondency was also because they failed to understand all his predictions about his resurrection. He said, yes, I'm going to die, but three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Even after he appeared to them on several post-resurrection occasions, his men still did not fully understand the purpose for his suffering and his death or his resurrection, which likewise means that even after his resurrection, they, didn't, they still didn't fully understand their roles As apostles, it wasn't until the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell and enlighten them that they finally began to grasp the full significance of Christ's life and death and resurrection and their own duties as apostles. And immediately, what did Peter, the leader, begin to do? He began to preach, and 3,000 people got saved. Now, another initial problem that the apostles experienced was their lack of humility. (laughs) Uh, They were self-absorbed and self-promoting, and we find that they were often proud and jealous men, concerned far too often with their own welfare and their own place of honor in the coming kingdom than they were with the Lord's feelings or his welfare. And to demonstrate for them a proper model of humility, what did the Lord do on one occasion? He took a small child, and he put that child on his lap, and he said, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And the debate among the apostles over who of them deserved the most prominent thrones, that became a real issue for them, that they fought over 
over and over again, right up to the time of the Lord's Last Supper, right up to the night that they were that Jesus was going to be arrested and crucified the next morning. They were fighting over who was going to be the greatest. And so what did he do that time as an object lesson against their pride to teach them humility? He washed their dirty, dusty, stinking feet himself. None of them had offered to, to wash his feet, much less each other's feet. So he did it. A further problem with the 12 concerned their lack of faith. We've heard over and over again how I said, oh, ye of little faith. Now, I'm not talking about salvation faith. They had salvation faith. It wasn't too great, but they did believe in Jesus. Um, But I'm talking about their um, trusting faith, their trusting faith. They had trusted Jesus for salvation, but they battled to trust him with the daily concerns of their lives, which is, is that something we do? Absolutely. Peter, on one God-anointed moment, had actually said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that was great. That was wonderful. It was on that truth that Christ would build his church. But yet, he denied even knowing him on the night that Jesus was arrested. So they struggled with, with their faith. Once, during a terrible storm at sea, the Lord had to reprimand them. He said, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? (laughs) Sometimes it went from little faith to no faith. Even after his resurrection, he had to rebuke them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed the message from the women who said, He's alive. We've seen him. And they didn't believe him. And so they were rebuked again. Also, their lack of faith bred weak commitment. In the beginning, when the cost was relatively small and fame and prestige looked like it might be theirs, you know, they would sit on his right and left hand in the kingdom. When all that looked great, they were willing to leave everything, leave their fishing boats and follow him. However, when they were facing swords and possible death in Gethsemane, what did they do? They all forsook him and fled in shameful fear. They also exhibited a lack of power. Without their master, they were impotent, powerless. They could not, even on one occasion, they could not exercise a demon out of a possessed child. And Jesus told them that it was their unbelief which caused their power failure. How was it, I'm almost through, how was it that the master teacher dealt with his twelve? and with their numerous failures. How did he deal with them? What did he do, and what did he teach them that literally enabled them to turn the world upside down? Well, he dealt with their lack of understanding by his own continual patient teaching. He dealt with their lack of humility, as we've already seen, by by being an example of humility and servanthood himself. He dealt with their lack of faith by continually demonstrating before them his divine power by way of his words and his miracles. He dealt with their lack of commitment by praying for them. He also warned them repeatedly of the persecution ahead of them so that when it came, they would not be overtaken in surprise and defeat. He said, you know, ye will be persecuted. And so then when they were persecuted, it was no big surprise and they didn't just quit. Ultimately, each one of the original faithful 11 apostles was willing to be martyred in his service for the Lord Jesus Christ, including John. John was not martyred, but he was willing to be martyred and he was definitely uh, persecuted. Furthermore, the Lord dealt with their lack of power by sending them the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, who was their strength and their comfort and their guide and their teacher and their their helper. All right, there are four lists, and you have these at the end of your notes, so if I would normally have a transparency up here, but let's just real quickly look at those four lists that are found of the apostles in the New Testament. They are Matthew 10, verses 2 to 4, Mark 3, verses 16 to 19, Luke 6, verses 14 to 16, and Acts 1, 13. Now, if you look at those while I'm talking, you'll see that Peter is named first in each of those four lists, right? Everybody see where I am? Peter is mentioned first. 
This means that Peter was not only the leader of that first group, there's four groups. I think I have them divided in four groups, don't I? He's not only the, uh, or th- is it three groups? Three, I'm sorry. Yeah, there's four, there's four lists and there's three groups. That's right. He's listed first in each of those lists of the, well, of the four and the three, <laughs> which means that Peter was the leader. Uh, now his, and that is not speaking of the fact that, that Peter was more important than the others. They were all equal in their divinely given commission. They were equal in their authority and their power. And all will one day equally sit on thrones as they judge the 12 tribes of Israel. However, in terms of their function, somebody has to be the leader. Somebody has to be the spokesman. And the one who was so good at putting his foot in his mouth became the spokesman for the group. And that was Peter. So it was a difference of position, not a difference of importance. Okay, But he's the leader of that first group, which also consists of his brother, Andrew, and then another pair of brothers, James and John who were the sons of Zebedee or the sons of thunder. Then in the second group, Philip is mentioned first in each listing. And so therefore, Philip was the leader of that second group, which also included Bartholomew, who's known otherwise as Nathaniel. Nathaniel, who said, uh, can any good thing come from Nazareth? That's Bartholomew. Bartholomew is a... um, Patronymic, I think it's called. It means son of Ptolemy. So it's, he was Nathaniel, the son of Ptolemy, which is the meaning of Bartholomew. Okay, and that group also consisted of Thomas and Matthew, who was the former Levi. And then the third group consisted of, or what the leader was, who do you think the leader was? James, the son of Alphaeus, because he's listed first in each one of those. And that group consisted also of Thaddeus. And if you go across, you'll see that Thaddeus is not included in the Luke 6 list, nor in the Acts 1.13 list. And that is because Thaddeus is the same as Judas of James. They are one and the same. You know, they sometimes had different names or they were named for, you know, their father, like son of Ptolemy, Bartholomew. But Thaddeus and James, Judas of James are one and the same. Also in this group is Simon uh, Zelotes, or Simon the Zealot, and they they call him the Zealot probably because he was formerly a Zealot. The Zealots hated the Romans and would sneak up on them and slit their throats, and so Simon was very possibly a Zealot. That's what it looks like. Now, Judas Iscariot, you'll notice, is not listed in the the last list, Acts 1.13. Why do you think he's not found in Acts 1.13? Right, because by this point in time, he had already betrayed Jesus and hung himself, and he was never a true apostle. He was a false apostle. Now, the first subgroup, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, consists of those Jesus called first to follow him as his disciples. The second group consists of those he called next, and the third group uh, consists of those he, he called third. Actually, we know quite a bit about the first group, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. We know a little less about the second group, Philip, Bartholomew, um, who's Nathaniel, Thomas, and Matthew. And we know very little, other than Judas Iscariot, about the third group. Now, you do know that Judas was replaced in Acts one twenty six by Matthias. And then, of course, the apostle Paul also became an apostle out of season. Although the apostles began as weak, untrained, uneducated men in the ways of spiritual matters, by the time we see these guys in the book of Acts, they are recognized by others as having been with who? Jesus. Jesus. It's interesting. When you look at the Greek and the people look on them and uh, say that they, it's obvious they had been with Jesus, they actually called them illiterate idiots. I looked that up in the Greek and I couldn't believe it. It says, look at these illiterate idiots. They have obviously been spending time with Jesus. <laughs> so if somebody says that to you, don't get offended. It's a compliment. <laughs> 
they had they had become by Christ's power and by Christ's patience and by his love and his wisdom they had become reflectors of the one or mirrors of the one they had followed Luke 6:40 says that the disciple when he is fully trained will be like his teacher the lord jesus had taught his apostles very well i mean after all he is the master teacher and they became living examples of him they were christians you know what the word christian means little christ they were little christ and they could then pass on to others what they had learned by being with jesus they could tell others how they too might receive the same power to transform their lives as each of them except for Judas had been transformed and aren't you glad for that let's pray father use us oh please father use us as your human instruments to lead others to a saving knowledge of your son mold us father and shape us and empower us so that we might be pleasing in your sight by the fruit that we produce for your kingdom by way of your holy spirit help us father to fully understand that it's not what we can do but that it's totally what you can do through us when we are simply yielded to you help us to see that it's not by might nor by strength but by your spirit working in us and lord we commit all that we are to you knowing that it is your strength which is made perfect in our weakness thank you so much for this lesson thank you for the hunger of your people Thank you for the apostles who laid the foundation for all that we have today in knowing you and having the New Testament and in fellowshipping and learning together in the body of believers. And most of all, thank you for your son without whom nothing is anything. But we pray for his name and his glory. Amen.